The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I'm going to break down this Easter message in very simple terms. And the title of it is Abundant Life. I want to first talk about the bad news for why it is that we need this Easter message. And then for the second part of the message, I'll talk about the good news of what it is that God has uh, done for us through Jesus Christ uh, to give us the solution to our problem. And so before we can really understand the fullness of the good news, we have to understand what the bad news is. And as the Bible lays it out, it says that in essence, um, the bad news is that we are a lost humanity uh, on the run, away from God. I want to begin the message this morning by showing you a video clip that comes from this movie called Brad's Status that just came out last year. I think it's actually a movie worth watching, uh, if we could advance. Um, this movie, I don't, I don't know, has anyone seen it? It's, a, it's not a real popular movie. Um, it tells the story of this guy, Brad Sloan, who's played by Ben Stiller, who is this middle-aged man who is in the midst of a full-blown midlife crisis. And he takes his son, uh, Troy, to college interviews in the Boston area. And in his idealism to make a difference in the world, Brad, basically after graduation, started a nonprofit. Uh, but all of his college friends went on to fame and fortune and ended up making a lot of money. <coughs> and so the movie, as it plays out, is the struggle of Brad to come to terms with the life that he has chosen for himself and the way that life has played out. And so throughout the movie, we're given access to Brad's inner thoughts that haunt him. And so the clip I want to show you right now is going to be a compilation of a lot of these inner thought monologues that happen throughout the movie. So I don't want you to be confused, uh, but it's a bunch of scenes stitched together, okay? And so it may be a little jarring because it's jumping from scene to scene, but uh, just realize that it's just capturing different parts of the movie, uh, but still nevertheless giving you this running commentary of what Brad is thinking about his life as he assesses it. So let's go ahead and take a look at that, and then we'll continue in a minute here. So happy Easter, everybody. <laughs> what a dark place is the human heart, isn't it? Uh, Brad's attempts to make sense of his life take him down all of the wrong paths. He second-guesses his life choices. And he sees all his life work as absurd with nothing to show for it. He compares himself with his friends and he regrets the idealism of his youth and he wishes that he had sold out and just made a boatload of money. As he says, for the rich, this, this world is their playground. It is heaven manifested. And it's crazy, right? But he even questions his wife's unconditional support. Whether it was a gift or it was a curse. 
because maybe it kept him from being more ambitious in his life, you know? Like maybe if she was harder on me, I would have achieved more in my life. And rather than being thankful for his life, he's saddened by it, by all of the options that he'll never get to explore. As it says in the very last quote there in that clip we looked at, I felt a deep grief for all the women I would never love (laughs) and all the lives I would never live. I wonder this morning if you've ever found yourself staring at the abyss like Brad, second-guessing the choices that you've made in your life, struggling to find a sense of meaning or connection, and all you find is loneliness and regret. I think Brad's crisis symbolizes our own struggle to find meaning and fulfillment in life and some of the dark places that that search will bring us to as we try to make sense of our own lives. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Later on, and two chapters later, he would write in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, speaking of God, he says, He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In other words, What he is saying is that God has put eternity in our hearts, a knowledge that there must be more to this life than what we see. In other words, a mere animalistic existence of survival is never enough to satisfy the deepest longings and searchings of the human heart. As spiritual beings, we need more. We need the eternal. We were made for more. We need meaning. We need purpose. We need happiness. We need hope. Just putting food on the table is never enough. But our search for meaning resembles a person wandering aimlessly in the dark. As it says here in this verse, no one can fathom what God has done. In other words, on our own, we don't have enough wisdom to find this meaning, this lasting happiness. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 puts it like this. Speaking of Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, when Jesus looked at the crowds, his heart was so moved within him because he says, these are like frightened sheep gathered together, shivering, terrified because of the hostility of the world in which they live. And so they're confused and they're scared and they don't know what to do in life. But what the Bible also tells us is that our lostness is not simply a lack of direction in our life. In other words, our main problem isn't a lack of information. As if all we needed was for God to point us in the right direction, the way that we should live. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In other words, what the Bible says is we are active participants in our lostness, in our efforts to turn away from God, to deny his truth, and choose our own path for our life. 
Romans 8, 7 to 8 says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Meaning, up to my own devices, according to my own faculties, I don't have it in me to love God or to seek Him or desire Him. There is something at the very core of my being that reacts against Him, that rebels and runs away from God. In other words, we are lost because we don't want to be found. We want to live life on our own terms. We want to craft our own meaning for what we want out of life. And I think that basically sums up the bad news. We are lost because we want to be lost, because we don't want a life under the rule of God. Well, the good news is that God offers us abundant life through Jesus Christ and finds us in our lostness. For this second part of unpacking the good news, I want to key in on the Apostle Peter's sermon that he preached on the day of Pentecost in a crowd of thousands in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 24, it says, Peter preaching to the crowds, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's a deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What I find interesting in Peter's sermon is that he takes it as a given that they all witnessed the miracle-making side of Jesus. He doesn't feel like this is a part that he has to make an argument for because he says, you guys knew when he was alive what he did in front of us in front of thousands, in fact, the countless miracles he did, he doesn't even feel the need to establish that as fact. But then Peter keys in on the death of Jesus, and he says, you know, it looks like he was a victim of circumstance, and the religious leaders among us put him to death. But what he says is, but what you don't understand was that this was by God's design. God planned the death of his son so that he could raise him from the dead. In verses 25 to 28, it continues, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And so Peter basically quotes King David who claimed that because God is with me, I will never taste death and my body will never experience decay. But then Peter goes on in the very next verse, verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. In other words, Peter points out that despite King David's claim that he would never see death because God was with him, he says, listen, we all know David died. And it's interesting because at that time it seems they even knew where King David's tombstone was. Because they said he's buried right there. We could dig him up right now if we wanted to and look at his bones. 
You know, he's dead. And so then the question is, so what in the world was David talking about when he said, because God is with me, I will never taste death? Well, Peter goes on in verse 30 to 32, speaking of David, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place on one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. What Peter is saying is this. David was not referring to to himself, but he was referring to the fact that God had promised him a descendant who would one day sit on the throne of David forever. And so he says he was not talking about himself, but he was talking about this Jesus that we saw rise from the dead. What's so amazing to me is that these disciples just days earlier were cowarding behind closed doors, terrified of the authorities that they were going to be next. Because in those days, whenever they killed an insurrection, they always killed the leader first, and then they would systematically hunt down the followers and kill all of them as well to extinguish the movement. But having witnessed the resurrection of their master, their, their rabbi, their teacher, they become completely changed individuals. And now they are boldly preaching in the streets for everyone to see without fear. I, I brief, briefly mentioned this last Easter, but I, I, I think it's such a powerful way to describe it that I wanted to share it again, is the, the perspective that this guy, Chuck Colson, who was the special counsel to Richard Nixon during Nixon's presidential administration. And he was convicted along with a bunch of others in this Watergate scandal, and he went to jail, where in jail he was saved when somebody gave him this book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And after he got out of prison, Colson would write about the experience of trying to cover up Watergate and what an absolute disaster that was. Colson writes, With the most powerful office in the world at stake, a small band of hand-picked loyalists, no more than ten of us, could not hold a conspiracy together for more than two weeks. Yet even the prospect of jeopardizing the president we'd worked so hard to elect, of losing the prestige, power, and personal luxury of our offices was not enough incentive to make this group of men contain a lie. After just a few weeks, the naturally human instinct for self-preservation was so overwhelming that the conspirators, one by one, deserted their leader, walked away from their cause, and turned their backs on the power, prestige, and privileges. And so he compares that ex- Watergate experience with what he read in the Bible of these men who were willing to be put to death for this claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's interesting how throughout history there have been repeated attacks of this claim saying what a hoax it was. It was a conspiracy of a group of followers who got together and all colluded to make a lie so that they could start this religion, carry it on with Jesus their leader had begun. But Colson points out 
Is it really likely then that a deliberate cover-up, a plot to perpetuate a lie about the resurrection, could have survived the violent persecution of the apostles? The scrutiny of early church councils, the horrendous purge of the first century believers who are cast by the thousands to the lions for refusing to renounce the lordship of Christ. Is it not probable that at least one of the apostles would have caved in and renounced Christ before being beheaded or stoned? Is it not likely that some smoking gun document might have been produced exposing the Passover plot? Surely one of the conspirators would have made a deal with the authorities. Now, I'll be honest. This doesn't prove the resurrection, the fact that almost every one of the disciples was tortured and put to death for their belief. But I think it should give us pause. It should give us something to think about that these once cowardly men that hid behind locked doors were now willing to be tortured so horrendously. And the question is, did they do that for a lie? For a lie. And what Peter himself testified before this crowd is, we were witnesses to this resurrection. We ate meals with him. We touched his body. Thomas could say, I stuck my finger in the hole in his wrist where the nail was. He says, we, we saw something. We witnessed something that we cannot explain. And we're willing to die for that. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 19 says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The claim of Paul is if this resurrection claim is not real, then everything falls apart and we are the biggest fools in the universe. But it is that absolute belief in the resurrection that drove those early disciples to the unbelievable lives of faithfulness and obedience that they lived before Christ. Everything about Christianity hinges on the truth of the resurrection. But I, as I've been pointing out throughout this surrendered series that we've been in during this Lent season, the gospel doesn't end with Jesus' resurrection. Peter continues in verse 33 to 36, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what, was, what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's the climax of the gospel. This man that was nailed on a cross, resurrected from the dead, and is now seated on the throne of David. The climax is this enthronement. 
the resurrected Jesus, now sitting on the throne of David at the right hand of God, ruling his kingdom. That's the good news of the gospel, is that we have a king who has risen again and who reigns over his kingdom. Well, the question is this then. What is the response to a message like this? What what is God asking of us? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Because in verse 37, it says this. Speaking of the crowd that day, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Because in essence, I mean, talk about a hard sermon. Peter basically said, do you understand what you have done? You have crucified the Son of God. You took part in that. And they're like, so how do you move on from that? What do we do now? And this is what it says in verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the last two messages in the series leading up to Easter, I've been pointing out what a critical role the Holy Spirit plays in effecting our salvation and responding, enabling us to respond to the gospel. Without the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, the Christian life is not only difficult, it's impossible. The first thing that we see that the Holy Spirit does is it convicts us of our guilt so that we can confess our sins and receive God's forgiveness. That's the first work is we can't even come to God and seek forgiveness unless the Spirit allows us to do so. And then the second thing that the Holy Spirit does is as we repent and come to believe in Jesus, the Spirit empowers us to live in obedience to Jesus, our King. In other words, when we invite the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we experience a power to change that would be impossible by our own efforts alone. Passage we've already looked at a couple weeks back, Romans 8, verse 3 to 6 says, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life. And peace. In other words, when the Spirit comes on us and fills us and empowers us, we can live the life that God intended for us that we could not do in our own strength. In other words, becoming a Christian is so much more than just exchanging one belief system for another. It is to experience a radically new quality of life under the control of the Holy Spirit. In that opening movie clip that I showed you about Brad's status, you know, that guy Brad, he was convinced that all of his problems lay in the changing of external circumstances as he looked and assessed his life. If only I could get a better job, a better career with a better income. If only I had better friends or a better home, 
If only I had a better wife that would challenge me more and not be so supportive, you know. This is the natural bent of the human heart. It's what Paul calls living in the flesh. But with the Spirit's help, what happens in us is we come to a place of brokenness where we say, you know what? The primary problem lies right here in my heart. It's not my spouse. It's not my job. It's not this broken world that is just trying to bring me down. It's right here in me. It begins with me. You know, there's this interesting encounter in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 15, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's interesting, we're never given this guy's name. But I think this anonymous person sees an opportunity in Jesus. And so he tries to enlist Jesus' help in securing his part of the inheritance. It actually looks like he's dealing with something very real and very painful. What most likely is a scenario is is their father has died. And the older brother, who now is the head of the household, has taken custody over the father's estate. And under Jewish law, that estate is supposed to be divided among the sons. But this older brother isn't doing it. He's holding on to his portion of the estate. That's a huge deal. That's your livelihood. That's life. And so he looks at Jesus and says, if you are Lord, you know, then help me out with this. Fix this injustice for me. That's actually, I think, a very reasonable and legitimate request to Jesus. But look at how Jesus responds to him. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Man, that's really cold of Jesus, right? I mean, it's hard not to feel like Jesus is being really cold-hearted to this guy. Yeah. Doesn't Jesus care about justice? Doesn't the guy have a legitimate complaint here? And he says, why are you asking me to be your arbiter between you and your brother? But I think this is the point. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is unrelenting in this, of staying on message, that what he is after is our hearts. He is after our hearts. In other words, what he was saying is, you are consumed by this, aren't you? And you think that your primary problem is your brother and the injustice of not being given your part of the estate. But he says, do you understand that when I look at your life, I diagnose it really differently. Your problem is this money has taken a root in your heart and it has consumed you so that it is destroying you from the inside. And it's this greed that has dominated your life that is the primary problem of your life, not your brother. I think this is the work that God desires to do in all of our lives. 
It's so easy, like that guy Brad in that movie, to see all of the problems is out there, and if only God would help me with those things, my life could be so much better. Why can't God just, you know, he's God. Why can't he just change my spouse to be such a more bearable, pleasant person? And why can't I have a better boss so that I'm not always being harassed like this? And why don't I ever get that promotion? And how come when I try to move up that ladder, it never works out for me? And there is such a dangerous dynamic to seeing that as our salvation. And saying, if only God would help me with this, I think I could finally find that happiness that has eluded me all of my life. But what God says is, you know, the work I want to do in your life looks so much more differently than that. As we confess our sins and submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus, and as His Spirit begins to change us from within, He begins replacing our fears with His peace replacing all of our hatred and resentment with his love, all of our anger with patience, all of our depression with joy, all of our addictions with self-control. This is life in the Spirit. It's what the Bible calls eternal life. You know, many people mistakenly think that what eternal life means is when I die, I get into heaven. Well, it is that, but it's much more than that. The Bible speaks of eternal life not only as an afterlife that we receive when we die, but it describes it as a totally different quality of life that we're invited to experience even in this life. John chapter 17, verse 3, it says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You hear that? Eternal life is equated with knowing God. And all of the joys that flow out of that knowing of God. John chapter 6, verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's the past tense. If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life right now in this moment. It's not something that you're waiting to receive when you die, but that eternal life is in you now. One last one, John chapter 10, verse 10. It says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's eternal life. What Jesus says is abundant life, a life in which our cup overflows. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit, regardless of what circumstance we face externally, There is an internal joy and a peace and a fullness that this world can never take away because God is with us and he is all we need. It is the power to change when by ourselves we are powerless. And I think this is the hope of Easter. It's not just that when I die, I know I will go to heaven. But it is even in this life because I worship a Christ who has risen from the dead and sits on his throne, under his authority, I experience a radically different kind of life that I could never know by my own power. I just want to close with this and we'll wrap up here is this, that when we are saved, we do discover this abundant life, a life that we've always wanted, 
But I also want to say this paradoxically. It also, I think, awakens us to a longing that is so deep that we only see it in glimpses in this life. And so what that eternal life does in us is it puts in us a hunger for more, a hunger for the fact that this world will never, ever fully satisfy the deepest longings in my heart. In other words, the Easter message is the hope of heaven, that when I die, all that is broken will be made whole. And all of the things that I just feel like I'm tasting little morsels of, I'm going to receive in the fullness of what God has planned for me. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in his now famous quote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. Let's pray. I think this is the real glory of the Easter message is that, you know, when we live in the power of our own strength, like that guy Brad in that movie, it feels just so hopeless, you know? It just feels like every turn is a wrong turn. And once you start playing that second-guessing game, oh, man, it's deadly, isn't it? And so you begin comparing yourself with others, and you start thinking, well, what's, what have I made of my life, you know? And um, just the fact that we think this way, I think, reveals what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, that there is this eternity in our hearts. There is this desire for immortality, that there's got to be more. There must be more. There's this deep longing and hungering that we can't even put a finger on. But what the Bible says is, without God's help, we don't know where true north is. We don't know how to find the truth. We're all like people wandering, fumbling in the dark, blindly. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the Easter invitation is this to surrender your lives to this King, Jesus Christ, who reigns on his throne and receive the glory of all of that reign and authority on your life through the power of the Holy Spirit to live the supernatural life that you could never live by your own strength. I think some of you in truth are being pervaded by dark thoughts and you know you are and the depression has set in and the resentment and the anger, but the problem is even as you acknowledge these things happening in you, you don't know how to overcome them. You don't know how to reverse these thoughts, how to overcome the darkness. And I think that's the great message of the gospel is it offers us not just information, but power that can be alive in us to make us alive to God. 
So my invitation to every one of us here in this room is to receive that invitation and to understand that we worship a Christ who has risen from the dead. And in that resurrection, we ourselves can be resurrected into eternal life, abundant life, the life that we have always longed for but always felt was out of our reach. And what that does is place in us a hope of heaven that one day after all of this is done, what I have awaiting me is the fullness of what I am only glimpsing like through a window, a glass, darkly. I will one day know fully because of what Christ has done. We just pray that for a few minutes and our worship team is going to come lead us in a time of response. Let's pray.